Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. Today I'm joined by dear friend and dynamic soprano Kirsten Chambers. We're coming to you from Gibbard's Beer Culture on West 72nd, my favorite uh, beer bar in the Upper West Side. Should be good. Hey, hey, meh, yeah. I find hilarious. Everybody, and it's always different. Everybody's different. It's not the same. I know some people that, that talk to themselves. Oh boy, that's really off. Like in the third person, they'll refer to themselves. Okay. Who who has support? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> All that. I don't think I've met a singer that doesn't. <laughs> do something along those lines, you know? You can't be a singer if you don't do that. That's right. Well, you know, they say, um, they say that they did a, they, the great ambiguous they, somebody did um, a study, and it was on pro golfers. Um, this is because I used to work at a golf club, which is why I know this weird random fact. So they did a study with golfers, um, and they, they did the, they tested the brain waves of pros versus amateurs, mm-hmm. and they realize that pros have a third of the brain activity that amateurs do when they golf, because they're in, like, they're in muscle memory mode. They get out there, they do what they always do, but if you watch them set, and this is exactly what we were just talking about with singers, if you watch them set, they'll get up, they'll line up their, their fingers, they'll, they'll get everything set, and then they'll do something like fix their hat, fix their, their shirt, and they'll go, and they'll, they'll take their pause and they'll swing, and they'll do it consistently all the time. You watch batters who do that in the batter's box. Singers do that. Pros that have a, a, a body-based something. It's about the onset. The onset determines everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you walk out there, you know, checked out, and you, your brain's in the middle of shit, then you're gonna, <laughs> you need to kind of refocus, you know. Yeah. Are you one of those people that when you're backstage, you have to... Like, do you talk to people backstage? Oh, I definitely talk to people backstage. And then, like, you walk, you like set and then walk on. And and I set and I walk on. I have like a moment. Yeah. But I actually like to be as normal as possible before going on to to a performance. Okay. Yeah. I want it because it it almost helps me be more aware if I'm really listening to people and yeah, yeah, yeah. Connecting with them. I can see that. Then I then it's really important to be part of the team. You know. Was it always that way, or did you like? Oh, it definitely was not always that way. <laughs> no, when I was a student, I had to like go in a corner and get into character and think about what is, you know, what, so, so there's Queen of the Night and there's Kirsten and, and what is, you know, what, 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 um, what blanks do I need to fill in to really be the queen? So now I just, you know, just <laughs> step just into the it. costume and go. Yeah. I remember my first role. So I did a lot of plays. I did plays before I did opera. So, I, you know, I did theater stuff. And when I, my first opera role was the Count for Marriage of a Girl, which, what God was I in over my head. Uh, I remember getting the score the first time and being like, seriously, this is, (laughs) what? (laughs) With how much recit? (laughs) So much to say. (laughs) First role. It was was fantastic. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. I actually, I did, it came out like tech week, like is when it finally came together. But I remember being backstage and like I was in 
this zone. Like I can't mm-hmm. talk to anybody. I was off people like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I just got to get into the space. And then I would say right before I kind of like stopped the last, the last show that I had, um, I think the last show that I had was street scene. Oh, that's a great show. And so of course the last scene I have, I'm a Frank Morant and I get dragged on stage by a couple of cops and I'm handcuffed and you know, I'm trying to fight my way out and I'm trying to make the audience cry basically. Mm. <laughs> and I remember standing backstage goofing around with the two cops and joking with the stage manager and somebody else. And so I was like, you're going to miss your cue. I'm like, it's fine. I have like 42 seconds. And, <laughs> and I knew it. And then I went from just completely goofing off to turning around and in stage mm-hmm. on character, bam, like good to go. <laughs> it's funny how that changes. Yeah, it's in, yeah. I think it's instantaneous. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, we have our weird quirks and shit. Oh my gosh. Yes. So you're drinking, um, I am drinking Von Trapp. Von Trapp Oktoberfest. Yes. I'm drinking the new, uh, hibiscus IPA by, um, industrial arts. These guys are real good. If you weren't sick, I would have you try it. So when we go back downstairs, you can take a little sample. I love a shot. It's it's light on the hibiscus. It's not, um, and it's not sour. It's just kind of, it gives a little color, a little bit complexity. Yeah, yeah, it's real nice. Um, As compared to my favorite hibiscus beer has got to be um, Boulevard's Hibiscus Goza, which is a sour, and it's like, it's tart, Mm. and like it gets you right there. It's so good. Every time I go to Kansas City, I stock up. I brought... (gasps) I brought literally, I think, 24 cans back to the city. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was not all the beer I trucked back. I was like, don't get pulled over. I'm definitely running alcohol right now. Yeah. I was just in Lexington, and I did a gala there at yeah. the Bluegrass Opera. Bluegrass Opera. Bluegrass Opera. And they did. They had a bluegrass opera band at the gala. Nice. Um, and they do mostly new opera because my friend who runs it's a composer. Uh-huh. And the first thing I did, I had the best host family ever. They take me right, right to a wine tasting. Oh yeah. Yeah, they take that, me right to a wine tasting. They know I an buy, opera singer. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> and I said, I said, so now I know you're performing tonight. And I said, well, you know, I'll, I'm a soprano, so I'm gonna go a little gentle, but this is this is fine. I'm, you know, I'm, right. I think I'm gonna be okay. It's not till the evening. <laughs> and it was awesome. You know, I just yesterday got a whole, you know, the shipment that I ordered, and it was delicious. Wonderful, beautiful vineyards in Lexington. I don't think I've ever done wine tasting there. Oh, and the, and the grass is more green than anything we've oh, ever yeah, seen yeah, anywhere. Yeah. Well, it's horse country. Yeah. Oh. That, that was a world I used to be involved in, equestrian stuff. So I'm familiar with that aspect of that area. But mm-hmm. not, I didn't know they did a whole lot of wine stuff. But oh, yeah, the vineyards are gorgeous. Reds, whites, all the above. <laughs> My favorite was a strawberry wine. Ooh, okay. All right. <laughs> it's a little, right. little juicy, but... So good. It's so good. It was a blueberry wine that I had coming out of Missouri. Missouri is not really known for its wines either, Mm -hmm. but um, there was a really sweet, it was a very juicy, very fruit forward (laughs) uh, blueberry wine that was actually really, really tasty. But like you, they even sold it in slushy form, which was not a bad way to go. Oh yeah. You could totally make a slush with this strawberry wine. Oh yeah. For sure. I'm going to tweak that just a little bit there. Yeah. There you go. You're fine. That's You're a big there. mic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. That's the big one. Yes. <laughs> mm. I got these for my, for recording. Like, I, I really like this with opera voices, 
but they have a very when you oh, okay. when you do um, when you do voiceover stuff with them, they're very rich, and they Ooh. got a really nice low end and mid. That's with a the highs are, are delicate and a nice mm. a nice roll off to it. Yeah, so I was like, yeah, what I think about the depth and the use war? these for podcast. Mm, I know some good roles that require yeah. lots of depth and warmth. Exactly. Well, it annoys me when you get. I mean, recording the operatic voice is always so finicky because when you have a particularly large, not even large voice, but a re really resonant voice, to capture the full breadth of that voice is not oh, an easy yes. feat. Um, and I think it, it takes somebody who's really familiar with the operatic form to, mm -hmm. like, a tech to understand that. Um, I have acquaintances who have teched, the first couple times they teched opera, they're like, okay, that was not what I expected. And it recorded totally differently than I expected, and they had to alter their, you know, their form. But once you get used to it and you know how to do it, it's there's nothing like a live performance. But once you know the operatic voice, you can you can help it. Yeah, probably the, the best experience I've had recording was working with you. Well, thank you. And the whatever you had put on the reverb was just it was gorgeous. I think I feel like I sounded like my best self. And that was a you know that's. I didn't even want to add a whole lot to it because we record in a really dry space. I wanted mm -hmm. just to give the room space as opposed to giving an echo. Like I didn't want, because I didn't want that back slap off the back wall kind of thing. I didn't want to. It sounded a like one a and real half, hall. Yeah, yeah. Which is the whole point. Right. That's how they want to hear the operatic Right. Voice. It needs to, it needs to, and also has to Especially. fit the visual as well. Mm -hmm. If you put a really, really big sound, like a, like if it looks like you're recording in a, 10 by 15 room, and then you put the space of a 2,000 seat house behind it. It does. It looks weird, and it's like it doesn't line up mm -hmm. visually and aurally. Like that just doesn't quite make sense. There's a fine line to walk of what's too much reverb. How much do I want to su support the voice more than what's already there? You know. Yeah, it's important it sounds natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and there's also those. You hear those recordings where people are like, all right, I'm going to put you in this massive hall, and it's you're going to sound amazing. And you're like, that's great, but now there's a two and a half second delay on my voice. And, and we I clearly, don't sound like myself. I don't sound like myself, and we clearly recorded in a box. Like, yeah. Nope. Yeah. Fine lines to walk, my friends. Fine lines to walk. <laughs> so what are, you, what are you singing right now? I didn't tell you I'm doing, um, I did Zolome, um, again, another again. Zolome, yes, <laughs> and it was a great experience because it was winter here in New York City, and it was summer in Miami. Not so a bad gig right there. Not a bad gig. Yeah. I got to work with someone I've always wanted to work with, the choreographer Rosa Mercedes. All right. And she, if you haven't worked with her, you're missing out. She's one of the kindest, most just really understand singers and how to choreograph for them. I'm just one of the best people in the business. And so I got to do that. It was awesome. And she actually used real veils for the dance. Nice. You know, it was beautiful, very interesting. Yeah. And then this summer, I got to not only sing, but I was a teaching artist at this awesome festival. And we talked a little bit about this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morelia, Mexico. Yeah. One of the most beautiful cities I've ever been I to. I love that city. It's not a city most people go to. Michoacan is not a section of Mexico that the cartels have helped them a whole lot. Um, and so there was a time, especially in the mid-2000s, where people kind of stayed away from there. But it's calmed down quite a bit politically. Um, but it's a phenomenal city. It's absolutely gorgeous. 
um, between the, the, the new murals and, oh my gosh. and the old architecture. And the it's just pink. The buildings, yeah, are, the pink. buildings are pink. It's absolutely amazing. But the weather there is perfect oh, year-round. It's like spring. Yeah. It's and like it, yeah. 75, 80, just at the foothills of the mountains, kind of horseshoed in by the mountains, and the fruit and food. Oh, I wanted to lose weight. I did not lose weight. Yeah. Best no. mangoes I've ever had down oh, there. Unbelievable. Yes, it's yeah. good. Yeah. And they, and they cook the, the rich Mexican food. Like, that, oh, yeah. like, you know, really, really rich. Oh. And the mezcal. Yeah. I also brought home some mezcal. Oh, you did? Yes, it's very important. Where's that today? <laughs> yeah, I could have brought some mezcal. <laughs> oh, no, I thought I was getting sick. And at the, at the end, well, initially, kind of freaked me out yeah. singing there because the first two days, it's a very high altitude. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, what happened to my breath control? Um, but perform the performances weren't until like two weeks. Oh, so you had and time so to I was acclimate. Fine. I was fine. Got to sing a little Zenta, a little Brunhilde, super easy stuff. Super easy. Um, but I thought I was getting sick right before the performance. And <laughs> they're like, drink some mezcal. And I said, okay, I'll drink some mezcal. Sure. <laughs> I wasn't sick. Felt Perfect. great. Imbalance gone. Nice. Mezcal so, singer so friends. So now you just carry it around all the time. All the time. Just a little shot. Just a, a little, just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it feels so good. It opens the chest voice. So that was a that was a teaching slash gig. Yes. So what was the what was the teaching that you were doing? Were you doing master classes? I was or were you doing, doing one on one? Master classes. Nice. Which, uh, you know, I've done a lot of master classes. They're kind of like a performance, and it's a really tricky thing because it's very important. You don't really know the students. Right. And so you have to figure out, okay, so which, who is, what is this person? Is that is this person more physical, emotional, cerebral? Right. Um, how are what is, after hearing them sing, you know, what's one thing that I could probably change in this 20 minutes? Right, this so right they now. they are going to leave feeling encouraged yeah. and, and satisfied. What was the group like that you were working with? Were they, was, oh. it, was it like undergrads, was it grads, semi-pros, a big stretch? A big stretch. Okay. I mean, there was a student there, 17. It was international, which yeah. was awesome. So a lot of different languages. Excellent. My uh, master class was translated because some of some 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 of the sing singers spoke Spanish and not not a lot of English. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot of Spanish, which which was great, great. for me. Um, and they were, and then there there was people there old old as 38. So it was a qu quite a broad range, but mostly yeah. I would say undergrads. Okay. Major talent. Some great tenors. Yeah, great singers overall. Anybody in particular we should be watching out for? that you can think of off the Ooh, top of your head? Amanda Batista. Okay. Yeah. I loved working with that voice. That is a star in the making. Good it's to know. like a dramatic mezzo sound. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little early. She's in, gr she's in grad school. Yeah. And what a personality. Her Carmen. I mean, I just sat there with my mouth open in the concert. And it was so cool, like, in the gala to see how they all, like, really absorb what we were teaching them so yeah. quickly. I mean, every single one of them. That's a that's another hard thing that you can that's where you can start to pick pull apart the people that are I should say separate from the rest of the group the people that you see as having professional potential oh god yeah that versus boy. people that enjoy singing mm -hmm. is how fast they adapt to input and direction oh, that yeah. you know if you if you're in a master class and you can immediately apply something like that that was her you know that's with that's everyone. fantastic with everyone yeah I mean, she was just... And yeah, some, people, some people have that innate ability, and then some people have to learn how to do that. But the people that automatically have it, you're, like, ah, you're going to go away right there. That's yeah, she gonna, was just really in a moment, just really open to yeah. what everyone had to say. 
yeah. and was able, yeah, she was able to make changes right then and there. Nice, nice. Uh. That's that's something I, I had to work a long time to figure. Like I could do it oh, acting oh, wise, but as a singer, that did not come easy for me. I had to really, really work on immediate application and then consistency in doing it always. Like it's really easy to do it right now. You're like, yeah, that was great. <laughs> And you leave the master class and then you go and try and do it later. Like, I don't remember what that yes. was. I don't remember how that felt. I don't yes. remember. But if you can put it into practice and then immediately follow through, that's impressive. No, an undergrad technique took the longest. Mm -hmm. I always, I was a good musician. Yeah. That came naturally. I have a, you know, I play the piano. I have an instrumental background. But wow, like learning technique. I didn't really learn till I was a young artist. Yeah. So, you know, it's so hang in there. Yeah. Young I mean, I, I would say I, it wasn't until I was in grad school that I learned to adapt, apply, and then retain oh, yeah. all back to back and consistently. But in undergrad, out, that yeah. was that was not a thing for me. It took a, a lot of work. No, that's the trick, figuring out what you do in the studio and then taking it home with you. So I got to ask, uh, yeah. altitude-wise, um, did you do anything specifically that helped you sing? So I, I taught this summer, as we've mentioned before, I taught at Taos Opera Institute this summer, mm -hmm. which is a 9,300 foot elevation for Towski Valley for where we stayed and I did not envy the students that had to sing at 9,300 feet consistently no. and I know I, I don't think that Morelia is quite that high but it's high enough that it affects you yes it um, does for sure yes um, you feel dizzy after yeah singing yeah uh-huh did you yeah did you have any of those moments where you you had to oh. Breathe a little extra because you felt like you were getting Definitely. a little sway. And Definitely. And I'm one of those singers who I don't like to take the extra breath. Yeah. But I've discovered, Daniel, that there is no breath police. No one's going to come and arrest you if Weird, you take right? a little extra breath. <laughs> I also just made sure that I wasn't, because I felt like I was running out of breath, just really releasing in between yeah. phrases and then not taking breath in necessarily. Right. You know, because uh, singing the big stuff. Yeah. You have a tendency to overblow. Yeah. You just think, oh, I have to be, you know, really big. And the more air you send at something, it can, you know, dis it, it dissipates the sound. Right. So really making sure it was actually a really good vocal technique um, trick for me because I learned, okay, yeah, this, this works. When I starve the air at the top and when I starve it at the bottom and it's really support through my passaggio in those tricky spots, yeah. it works better. So. I, the second day I was in Taos, I pulled out, just so I could figure out where the singers were at, I mm -hmm. pulled out um, some Verdi, just to, just okay. to see the stuff that's challenging for me to sing, yeah. to see kind of how it felt. For everyone to sing. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that I'm singing regularly that is at the, the harder stuff for me, the harder rep for me to sing, what it was like to sing that at altitude... And I was, I've never, I've never been, you know, Havorostovsky with my breath, because who is? Yes. Um, but nonetheless, singing stuff that I, I mean, I was singing phrases that were half as long as what I used to do. And I was like, oh, I have to, I have to, re I have to completely adapt singing at this altitude. And then when you have to take the breath, taking it with the intent that it's almost in the storytelling, mm -hmm. so that it doesn't seem like I'm gasping. Yes. No gasping, and also just you can really tell when notes come out of the tube. Oh, yeah. You know, especially in the soprano voice where we don't necessarily, our passages are a little lower. Yeah. You know, going into the chest voice, and I was like, wow, it, I can really tell when that's coming out of the tube. <laughs> so it's a, it was actually a really good technical tool, yeah. I think, to have. So that was Zalame in Miami um, mm -hmm. after, uh, after Mexico. Yeah. What, uh, what else has been recent for you? Well, I'm working on a lot of new repertoire. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be covering at the Met. Actually, what, what show are you covering? 
Shows? I'm covering Valkyrie, Ooh. which I've never been a Valkyrie. You know, I've never done Helmdiga, so I'm covering for the first time. Excellent. And I think it's the production where you get to fly. Yeah. Which is really awesome. <laughs> and I thought I was going to get to fly in Angels at City Opera. Right. You know, it's like you're dangling at six feet in the air. and But they put me in like an open cage. And, yeah. you know, I had to wear this football-like harness. And then to, and moving around on stage is really difficult. Trying to straddle the well, I mean, you're gonna wear a harness either way. Yeah, it's true. Even if you're, I mean, if you're even if not in the cage, if you're flying, you're still gonna mm -hmm. wear that harness. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm excited about that. I'm having a piece written for my voice, so I've been Ooh. workshopping that. Who's the Who's the composer? Um, it's Jorge Sosa. Okay. And I have been following this company for a very long time. It's called White Snake Projects. Um, new opera's always been really important. That's how I got my start in New York City, yeah. along with my husband. And they do things right. If you follow their videos online, gorgeous productions, really relevant and current, uh -huh. um, well-supported, and meaningful work about stuff that's really happening now. This is an immigration opera Wonderful. that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, it's called The Dreamer Who No Longer Dreams. Okay. And when we first read through the score, um, Cerise Jacobs is also the librettist, and yeah. she does a lot in mythology. And both Cerise and Jorge are recent immigrants, Cerise from Singapore and Jorge from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And there was not a dry eye in the house. Fantastic. You know, it was just so moving because you could really feel what they wrote. Yeah. Um, and I get to play three different characters. I get to play a gangsta. <laughs> nice. So Iggy Azalea <laughs> is in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> Harness your... Harnessing her. Any inner Iggy. Yeah, I, yeah. Actually, I think that's, yeah, that seems to be the easiest one interesting enough for me to go to. Yeah. But I'm playing the villain. Um, the prosecutor. I'm not going to lie. I like playing villains. Oh, I'm all about it's playing a, the villain. You get to do stuff that you would never do. Oh, and interesting. Most composers who are interested in working with my voice, they always say, I have a really great villain <laughs> I'd like you to play. <laughs> I mean, it always comes up, and I'm like, gosh, you know, what's why? You know, yeah. what's, what's with that? But yeah. I think they just know I've played a lot of villains, Yeah. and I'm good at it. So yeah. I think they, yeah, they can tend to, that tends to happen a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the oh, and then also the mother. So I get kind of a break from the villain role. But I keep wondering what my neighbors are thinking, because some of the things that I'm saying <laughs> as the prosecutor... It's in English. Gangster, it's in English. And... Um, yeah. 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 I, playing a villain is really interesting. And I say you get to do stuff you would never normally do, like, like it warrants you being an evil person. But it's not. It, it allows you to use your, your, the good side of your nature. Yeah. And be like, okay, if I were to completely ignore that and be the entire opposite, what would I be? And then you throw that into the character, and it's, it's it can be very very difficult. I remember and the, the villain thinks they're right. They oh think yeah, they are good. absolutely. So there there has to be. Right. I mean, it's like, um, I mean, this, we're referencing musical theater here, but mm -hmm. if you look at um, Javert and Les Mis, I mean, talk about a villain that believed wholeheartedly. Oh yeah. Everything that he said. That I'm I'm right. And it wasn't that uh, you know you look at you look at Scarpia who sees himself as a villain. You know, like he knows he's he a villain. He enjoys being he a villain. He enjoys being a villain and knows he's a villain. You, and if for a human character, not like Mephistopheles, who obviously has to be evil, but for a human character to be, I don't necessarily think that I'm right, but I know that I'm evil and I can get away with it, is one thing. But to be a villain that it has that kind of conviction that says, no, 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 what, what I believe is, is accurate, mm -hmm. is a very interesting thing to play, character-wise. How do you, do you do anything to get into that 
headspace into that character space to oh absolutely no I, I journal about it Daniel <laughs> there you go <laughs> I take out my journal and I write okay so this is what this character's like yeah and this is what Kirsten's like you know that times this would will bring you know your interpretation your story of the character yeah how can you put these two things together you know and it's and it changes um, when I, I had a, an audition last week for a Zalame and I how the way I feel about Zalame has changed and I thought okay so what's Zalame like what, what's the arc that Zalame's happened with you I mean what's the how's it changed to you how you perceive the character I think because I've performed her so, so many times yeah. and I've had different input from directors yeah that kind of like I'm t I feel like I'm telling their story a little bit yeah and then when I've had like a little break from her I thought okay what is my story? You know, I kind of go back and but, but while, while keeping a shade of what they, what they all, and kind of putting it all together for myself. How do you perceive the character? If you were oh to not gosh. have direction. Zalame, she is invincible. You know, she's so great to play because, she, well, again, she thinks she's, she's right. Yeah. Um, you know, there's also that little girl that just wants to be loved. Um, everyone, you know, is, is she's the object. Right. And so she only knows how to objectify everybody. Um, but no one really sees her. You know, if, if you would have seen me, you would have loved me, she says to Johanna on in, in the final scene. Yeah. And so kind of like, I, it's so funny, you feel like you're just trying to prove yourself up until after the dance, and then you're standing there naked, and you suddenly feel empowered. Yeah. You know, it's, and of course, it's different for every artist. Right. But I feel like that's when she gets her power back. So, and I would have never thought of that for me. Right. You know, but I think it, it depends on you know who you are and what your experience has been and and what and and that's but that's yeah she's she's she knows she's beautiful she knows she's sexy she knows she can get what she wants and when she can't she's shocked <laughs> and so there, it's, there's a lot of like being in love and there's a lot of rejection and and handling that and and thinking about your own personal stories and where you you felt wow that person didn't see me you know, yeah. And how how do you get someone to see you? So this, you had your Met debut as Zalame. Yes. <laughs> but, I so, did. So you weren't you weren't you weren't contracted. Um, you were covering. I was covering. Mm -hmm. Talk me through that day. I mean, what's what's that process like to go from oh. covering to being on that stage? Uh, what, how's the, I mean, did they let you know earlier on in the day? Okay, yeah. So talk me, talk me through so th that whole process. So the night before, they told me that Pat Reset wasn't feeling well. Okay. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's a shame. I hope she feels better. Um, it's a real, you know, it's a real bummer to sing Zolome sick. Because I had sung her before, and I thought, that's, you know, that's terrible. And then they, and so I never thought I was going to go on. Yeah. I had a good night's sleep, you know. And I was, I was getting over, you know, a chest cold myself. So I was just like, oh, I hope she feels better. It's been, you know, no fun singing this. And then the day of the, and then the day of the performance, the next day at 2.30 p.m., Judy Montgomery, she calls me, the Met Artist Relations, and she says, Kirsten, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling great, Judy. How are you? And she's like, I'm feeling great. Unfortunately, Pat is still not feeling well. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And she said, how do you feel? Kirsten about going on tonight and singing Zolome at the Metropolitan Opera. And I said, well, Judy, I feel like I'm up to singing Zolome at the Metropolitan Opera. And how that's soon do you need me? That's why I'm here. That's yeah, why that's I'm why covering. I'm here. That's why I'm doing opera. So um, how soon do you need me here? And she's like, well, 
they're all in a rehearsal space waiting to rehearse the dance for you. Ooh. Yeah. So what do you need? And I said, well, I'm going to get in a cab. Were you close by or were you up in Inwood? Oh, no, I was up in Inwood. I was up in Inwood. I actually had practice, so that was good. Nice. I had exercise, so it was kind of warm. Um, and so I said, I'll just grab in a cab. I'll get in a cab. Hopefully, if traffic's good, I'll be there in 20 minutes. So she's like, well, do you need anything from me? Anything at all? And I thought, God, it'd be great. My husband's my coach. Muscle Maestro. Muscle Maestro. Muscle Maestro. If you don't know who Muscle Maestro is, you can follow him on Instagram. His name's Keith Chambers. <laughs> he can play anything, and he's an incredible conductor. Anyway, and I said, I'd like the Muscle Maestro <laughs> to have unlimited access to backstage. And she's like, sure, sure. So I throw in a leotard, get in a cab, text Keith, my husband, and say, Keith, I'm singing Zolome tonight at the Met. You... How soon can you get here, and can you bring my toothbrush? <laughs> so, because I realized, yeah, I need to have, <laughs> you know, clean breath, you know. So no, that's important. No, no washing the teeth with mezcal again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no washing the teeth with mezcal. So, yeah, so I get there. I actually get there, which is a miracle, in 20 minutes time. Impressive from Midwood. It's, it's a miracle. It's not shabby yeah, at all. Yeah, not shabby at all. Get there. We rehearse the dance. Feeling good. My husband gets there. We rehearse musically, like... The different parts and then the conductor comes in and i've never met the conductor who's conducting that show oh fantastic german conductor shoot and he's really famous oh my gosh <laughs> really really famous it's okay and he's awesome he was so good he's so good i would love to work and then i'm just blanking but he's yeah. amazing um anyway and we went through you know the different different challenging parts it's all good this i mean you, you just people just keep coming to your dressing room when you're like, you know, <laughs> at the end, the, um, uh, who comes in next? The uh, stage, assistant stage director says, you know, want to talk through it. Right. Um, all good. And he says, we need to go and show you the stage. Have you been on stage? Had and you I, had a chance at that point to have been on stage oh in no, character? Okay. Oh no. And my greatest fear for this one was actually falling in a hole. In this production, there are so many holes in the stage. Yeah. So I wasn't worried about singing Zolome. I wasn't worried about the dynamics, the huge orchestra. Just worried about dying on set. Wasn't worried about the Met. Wasn't worried about, you know, nudity. I was worried about falling in a hole. I mean, it's a reasonable fear. It's a reasonable fear. And I didn't fall in a hole. So that, I mean, I was, well that was a successful performance in that respect. So shows me, shows me that. I get in, get back. Oh, I have dinner. And all these people coming up to me, Kirsten. You're singing Zolomay tonight at the Met, all my friends. And I'm like, yeah, I am. They're like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm so relaxed. And Daniel, that is the biggest thing that surprised me. I never got nervous yeah? that day. That's awesome. I was so chillaxed. I was so chilled. And I was, I was never nervous. And I think what I've learned, because I've had a lot of jump-ins in my career. Yeah. I, I hate to be known for that, but I, I've had a lot of jump-ins. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and it gives you the opportunity. You embrace it. You're so in the moment, and you're so relaxed, you can't, there's no time for nerves. You just think, okay, I've got to do my job. And that was all I was thinking. So yeah. I was really relaxed. Um, do you remember much from the performance? Or no. It was just, no. you did it, you got off stage, and people were like, how did it go? And you're like, I don't remember. I don't. I don't remember. The only thing I remember, and I still remember this, during the bows, I think, oh my God, <laughs> should I have done that? Was that any good? Did they like it? That's what you were worried about. That's what I remember. And then I, I hear my friends' voices. 
I hear their voices cheering, screaming in the audience for me. And I thought, Kirsten, just be grateful. Yeah. It could have been any one of us up there. Yeah. And that night it was me. I remember seeing the post on Facebook that Keith put up that you were going on. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, can I get to the Met tonight? And I had <laughs> other things booked and I was pissed because I couldn't. Um, but just the rally of friends around you that you had was pretty impressive. It was amazing. And <laughs> hell of a support group I mean, right there. So many of my friends have children. Yeah. And both the husband and the wife showed up, I mean, without the baby. Yeah. I guess it's not, you know child approved there's, there's an age limit on Zolomay. I mean there's but, some violence there's some nudity yes but they all found babysitters last minute and they were all there for me I mean there were so many people there that it w that weren't even going to be in New York and they were there there was a friend from high school that I hadn't seen from high school we were in Godspell together and um going back a little bit she was there with her ex-husband in the front row and she kept like looking I, I for some reason she well she didn't know my last name was Chambers and she was like, she was in the front row, and she's like, this looks like Kirsten. You know, my so she wasn't name. there for well, you. I mean, Zolomay happens to be her favorite opera. That's awesome. And I didn't even know she was living in New York, because she's, prim she's primarily working in Paris. Okay. Um, and she's a singer. She, does, she has a full-time job as a business person, and then she sings opera on the side. Nice. Which is really cool. And so she was there, and I get a message later, and she's like, Kirsten, this is Rachel. <laughs> Did you just sing Zolomay at the Met? And I said... <laughs> Yeah, I did. She's like, I just saw you. That was awesome. That's fantastic. And so, you know, it's really cool. So not only did I, you know, I, I made some, re I, there were a lot of people I reconnected with and yeah. I made a lot of friends Yeah. too. A lot of, a lot of um, people who really enjoyed that night can, I connected with. I, I got to say for, for every, every young singer that I've met that's American, one of their end goals at the peak of their career is to sing on that stage. Yes. What's it like singing on that stage for those of us who haven't done it? I don't know if it would have been different if I would have known in advance. Um, I was so like into doing my job. It felt like I was singing in any other opera house. There's nothing wrong with that. Like I just felt like I was just singing Zolome anywhere. So not until I actually like took the bow and started looking around <laughs> was I like, oh my God, this place is huge. So you weren't like, I should have probably thought about like sending the voice out. No, the, like hall, I was just, the I, hall I, takes I, care of that on itself. Yeah, it does. Oh, it's such a great acoustic. It's on it for, that's totally fine. You'd have to you do, do you, feel the sound coming back at you. So you don't feel like you have to do much. Does it? Good. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard mixed reviews from depending on where you are on that stage. That They I mean, had us pretty down but, low. But part of, it, part of it also has to do with the, the set itself and the rake mm -hmm. and the orchestra and, oh, orchestra. and <laughs> your specific voice and yada, yada, yes, yada. So. Yes. You tend not to have a problem being heard over an orchestra, which is well, why you sing Strauss. Strauss you know? Yeah, it really, <laughs> Strauss, you feel like you're flying. You know, the voice really opens up on the top, my voice, and Strauss, like, just knew how to compose orchestration for that kind of voice. He was know? composing for you just way too early. Yeah. For you. <laughs> I know, I would love to meet him. We'll see what we can I'd do about to. that. Yeah. If we can work on the, uh, the time travel tech. Let's see if we can introduce that real soon. Yeah, I hope he'd like me. Okay, so let's, let's talk about you and Strauss. Yeah. Seems to be an ongoing mm -hmm. romantic vocal relationship. Um, Keith mentioned when you had to, when you picked up the role last minute for, at Carnegie, oh. um, that you learned the role in two days and you basically yeah. just 
holed up in the bedroom with a keyboard <laughs> and just learned it yourself. Because I asked, because I've known coaching, a coach and uh, soprano couples, I know, I've known a few, yeah. and when learning new roles, they would often work together to mm. drill it into the oh, singer. yeah, no way. And I asked Keith, I was like, did you do that? And he's like, no, oh, he absolutely not. <laughs> Oh yes, no. I want to be. I want to be in control of that pro- part of the process. So, so, what is that process for you then? So, you have a role that's of that l- difficulty. Which, mm-hmm. let's face it, we all think it's hard, no matter who the singer is. Yeah. Um, and you did it in two days. What? What's your process mm. for putting that together? Because two days is. I mean, a week. Most pros that I know will learn a role in a week, week and a half. Yeah. Unless it's something you know obscenely long, like Suzanne or something like that. Mm-hmm. But two days. Yeah. I would say... Which means you're also, number one, a freak. Yeah. Which, which is, a, in a good way. Um, but definitely... Oh, I was a choir girl <laughs> in elementary school. I, I sang, like, at a semi-professional choir. So I would say sight reading. I'm a, I'm a good sight reader. So that, okay. I don't think it's learning so much. Yeah. I think it's more memorizing. And I was on a deadline for Isolde. Yeah. Actually. Um, and that's the longest role I've ever learned. Okay. Um, that's four hours. Yeah. And what I did is I wrote down every German word, like hand wrote it. Right. Uh, because I find you really memorize faster if you actually handwrite. 100%. Yeah. So I write, wrote it all down on a cheat sheet. I write the little um, rhythmic, whatever it is rhythmized above the words. Okay. And then use pneumatic devices to kind of remember walk around my house listening to the music, looking at my cheat sheet, and then that all goes away. And I imagine the music, um, you know, kind of visualize the cheat sheet. And it's, it's really memorizing the words. Memori- so you're you're yeah, text-oriented first I'm before you ever text. go after the music. Oh, yeah. Okay. I speak the text and translate it. I don't even care if I'm learning it in two days. I mean, that's one of those things we're all told to do. You have to tell the story. But I know so many singers that are like, well, no, I learned the music first, then I kind of plug the words in later. The first thing I did was not actually coach it with Keith, was coach it with a stage director. And I know I only had two days to learn it, but I also knew I had to give a performance. So I worked with Mark Rizot and like, and actually, so I could get out of the, out of it, out of the, of course it was, it was a concert at Carnegie Hall. So I had the score there, Yeah. but I didn't want to be staring at the score, even though it's really difficult. Right. I wanted to tell the story. Yeah. So important. Semi, semi-staged or concert stuff where the score is in front of you, I always find it distracting when the person is just buried in the score. Oh, and everyone had their head out of the score yeah. because they had this gig, they'd had this gig much longer than I did. So I, and I really wanted to relate to them and connect with them. I mean, I was <laughs> You didn't want to be the one principal just buried in the score? Yeah, this was Friedensdog. <laughs> and, and, and everybody was, you know, it was all, all male cast, and I was the one female with a giant orchestra, giant chorus, and they're all singing, war, 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 and I'm asking, oh, peace, golden sunshine. And I, I thought it was really important for my character, you know, Miss, Miss Sunshine, to be out of the score. Yeah. So I, I tried to do that. That was, that was really my first priority. Yeah. Just to, you know, read it accurately, which right. I know I can do just by right. looking at it and get going through it a few times. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a perfect performance, but, it, you know, musically, it, but, but, but it was practically perfect especially only learning it in two days. Right. You, you use those magic word, words that I only hear Americans say, and that is perfect performance. Oh, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. No. There absolutely is not. No. But that's this thing that I find that we're obsessed with in America is 
the technique had to be flawless and all the acting was completely on point and I hit everything just so. And it's like, if the story is being told really, really mm -hmm. well, I tend to forget notes that didn't quite land or an extra breath that was thrown in or missing the blocking. But if you're engaged the whole time, because if the story is told, then the story is what's remembered. Mm -hmm. But when somebody is banking on this perfect performance, we can tell that that's what they're looking for. And then it ends up being cold and disjointed. So I want that story to come across above anything. Like you said, you don't want to be buried in there just sounding mm -hmm. perfect. You want to get that story across. That's why the words are so important, why I always go to them first. You want to figure out what words you want to emphasize and how the composer does it. And then, you know, just thinking, listening to the orchestra, where those changes are in character musically. Yeah. That kind of thing. I remember working on Seco Reset in Italy. Oof. Which was a bitch. I've never even done it. But phenomenal. I mean, I will say that one of the things I pride myself on now mm -hmm. as a singer, even though I'm not singing that much anymore, is being able to do Seco Reset the Italian way. It truly conversational. I'll listen to so many performances where I'm like, this is, this is Reset, guys. You're talking to each other, and it's way too sing-songy, and it takes forever, and it's half the speed it should be. But the coaches that I worked with, the Italian coaches that I worked with, made us write everything down, memorize the text, and then do other stuff while we were speaking the text to each other as if we were doing a play. Mm -hmm. And then sort of ushered in the music a little bit, and then we kind of, we, we, we slowly let the music in, but only after all the text was 100%. Because to get that rapid fire Italian that they already have innately, that we don't have as Americans when we try and translate anything at all, uh, especially if we don't speak the language more than, you know, a salutatory level. Um, I remember writing, it all, writing all it down, yeah. writing it down, write it down, write speak it down. Speak it as a monologue. When I used to do monologue work, I would do it in the car while I was driving. I realized that if I could drive in rush hour traffic while giving a monologue in character, it was in, mm -hmm. like it was there. <laughs> yeah. And how would you say this? You know, you don't yeah. really want to feel like you're acting the character. Right. How would you say this as the character? Right. So we talked a lot about Strauss. If Ooh. you could... Oh, and I have another Strauss coming up. What's, what's coming up next? My most... The, I would... Oh, I hate to say this, but... It's such a sublime Strauss sing. Okay. It's Egyptische Helena. And I get to play Helen of Troy, who's the most beautiful woman in the world, singing the most beautiful music. And this Strauss sing, musically it's not super difficult, but technically, oh my gosh. <laughs> you have to sustain uh, a couple times. A high B for five beats, very slow tempo. Again, huge forces underneath you go up to a high D flat, again sustaining. So you are just singing in the stratosphere and just flying. So, but I can't wait. It's been something I've wanted to do ever since I first started singing Strauss. And When is that? That is not till April, so okay. I have a lot of time. Nice. And it's in Boston, which I've sung for Odyssey Opera before, and it is that orchestra. Oh, one of the best experiences. Nice. Mm -hmm. So, again, Strauss, Strauss, Strauss. Yes. Strauss, 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 Strauss. Yes. Um, if, would you if you had your, if you could sing any composer. Yes. Like if, if you, or I should say, not if you could sing, you can't, you can't sing any composer. Do you feel a 
deeper connection to Strauss than any other composer? Or Ooh, oh, I feel like I'm going to have an affair on Strauss by answering know, this question. Right? But it's true at this point. <laughs> I discovered this year <laughs> the Frau in Schoenberg der Wartung. Oh, yeah. And to coin Schoenberg, mm -hmm. singing Er Wartung is the ultimate spiritual experience. <laughs> Maximum spiritual <laughs> enlightenment. And I would say that's the greatest adventure. So I would have to say Schoenberg. All right. Um, I didn't expect that no, one. No, no. It challenges you in every way. Yeah. Um, vocally, you're singing to an orchestra at the highest range. You're singing um, Wagnerian forces yep. when you're singing your top notes. Yep. Then the low and the middle, it's almost like an cha intimate chamber sound in the orchestra. Um, vocally, oh, sorry, dramatically, um, she's in all the states of emotion every state you can think of, and the tempo changes based off of that. So yeah. you really have to be on the ball. But it's all written in there. Hate, love, depression, exaltation, and you feel all the feelings, and I love it. Yeah. It is just, it's one of those experiences that really puts you in the moment singing Schoenberg. Yeah. And I, gosh, I'd love to do that again. I did that with orchestra now with Leon Botstein and at the Metropolitan Museum of Art one of the coolest experiences. Again, it's another dead body, though, Daniel. Yeah. What is with that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> singing to a dead body. Singing to a dead body. Just singing to the dead body again. So you're either known <laughs> as the singing to a dead body soprano or the Strauss soprano, one or the other. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. You Schoenberg. know, I, I get that, um, what you talk about with singing Schoenberg, I, I get when I listen to Berg. Ooh, that's another. That's you know, a good one. Um, mm hmm the way he, he treats both melody lines and the voice in general. Similar to that in, in a lot of ways. But Schoenberg, Schoenberg cracks me up. I used to play a lot of Schoenberg piano. Oh, I, I, should, I shouldn't say yes. a lot. I, sh I played. I should have hired you so, to oh rehearse God, it. No. I don't have those chops anymore. That was a decade ago. Uh, but he's really unique in how it he... It sounds so easy. Yeah. Like, it sounds so easy. And then easy. you prep it and you're like, dear God, why am I here? Oh, <laughs> that, that I had to hold myself. Yeah. In the, in the room to learn, especially oh, just, sure. I, and, and also learn all the orchestra parts. Yeah. Because, yeah. You have to learn all of Schoenberg. Yes. If you're going to learn Schoenberg, you have to learn all of Schoenberg. Yes. You can't, you can't pick apart your line and be like, oh, I'm just going to sing this. It doesn't, you, there are some composers you can do that. You can, you can lift the melody out, just oh, rock that out and it's fine. Schoenberg is not one of those no, composers. No, I had the orchestra score always in front of me when I was rehearsing that. Yeah. He, he, and he gives different cues different ways throughout the, through the orchestra. You know, he'll, he'll tease certain things here and there, and then it comes out in your voice later on. It's great. It's super unique. He was also a real character unto himself. Um, yes, and he, yes. A little full of himself. You know, just, I mean, what composer he isn't? Let's face it. though, Daniel. He's so But, brilliant. yeah, yeah. I worked a with... A unique character. Deborah Pulaski, who um, is one of the greatest living Brunhildas. And she happened to be staying across the block from me when I was learning that. And she was, <laughs> she was you know, doing all this stuff. And I was like, Deborah, you know, you sang a Vartung. Would you mind, you know, coaching me on that? And I've never worked with someone so passionate about the character, about the music, about the German text. And one of the coolest experiences I've ever had was working with her hours every day yeah. in that role prepping that role. Awesome. Passion. It's infectious. So yeah, Schoenberg. 
Schoenberg. Interesting. And yeah, you, you cheated on Strauss a little bit there. I did. I did. Just, just a little bit. I did, yeah. Uh, what do you think is different now for the singers from 30 years ago? Well, you know, what, are, what are some of the challenges that you're facing as a, a modern opera singer that don't quite apply to being an opera singer in the 70s or 80s. Mm. You know, we look back at some of the great, rec the great recordings that we listen to yes. now tend to come from the late <laughs> 70s to the early 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we've kind of, we idolize a lot of those singers in that like 15 to 20 year span. What are you facing differently now from what they faced? Social media expectations. <laughs> you can be doing nothing, and if you're really good at social media, it looks like you're an ultimate rock star. Yeah. Or you could have a lot going on, but you're terrible at social media, so it looks like you're doing nothing. Right. You know, and then, I mean, there's, take, take, we were talking about Anna Netrebko. Yeah. Take her Instagram page. Now, I love her as an artist, and it's so cool to follow, um, but I think you can think, gosh, it can, when you, to be on all the time is a lot of pressure. Yeah. So I think I would have to say social media definitely the biggest challenge. Are you seeing it affect your career in any way if you if you are are active or you aren't active? Are you seeing it come out for you yet? I think it depends. Some yeah. of my friends older than me, they still don't even have a website yeah. or aren't on Facebook. But yeah. you know, they're singing the big stuff. They're a known commodity. Um, or some of their websites look like they're from the seventies <laughs> or eighties, if Accurate. you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's and I was like, well, they're still doing pretty well. But I, th I think for the newer generation, it's so important yeah. to be on there every day. You said the newer generation. I think that's really key. I was sitting at a table the other day with uh, Christy Swan and yeah. Christopher Maltman, and we were discussing website stuff and mm -hmm. social media and web presence and that kind of thing. And um, Christy was like, you know, so, some of the stuff I'm really on the ball with, but I need to get better at social media yes. and yada, yada, yada. And... Uh, and I said, yeah, I said, you know, it applies to certain people. I said, younger singers, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're in your 30s and younger, absolutely. I said, but some yes. people, it doesn't really apply to it. And Christy goes, really? And I pointed at Chris. And uh, I was like, this dude right here is the perfect exception to the rule. Right. He doesn't have a website. If he's, they know who you are. He's got his artist website. But that dude works more than anybody else that I know. Mm -hmm. Like, Moment is all over the planet. But videos go viral. Yeah. That, you know, they do. That's how the people have careers. But if you're, if you're not known, you need to yeah, be he's, he, you know, he's one of those people that he's at a point where he doesn't have to deal with it. But he's had a career that has built him up to this point where he has to say no to gigs because he's too busy. Mm -hmm. Louis Chop is another one. Yeah. You know, he and I were talking when we did his photos about how he feels like he slacks on social media and that kind of thing. But he's another dude that he gets done with a gig and immediately is on the plane to the next one. And then the next one, and the next one, he's like, I need to go home and visit my family at least a little bit and remember that they exist. And then I'll go back and sing again. And he's past yeah. that. But I'm seeing with a lot of singers in their 30s and younger, it's really, really key to develop that uh, habit of, of content creation mm -hmm. on social media. Um, I know for anybody that's over 30, it almost feels narcissistic. You know, yes. it feels like, oh gosh, definitely. God, I'm talking about myself again. Yeah, I always you, think about you know, how can what I say be a service to others? Yeah. You know, that's what I As always As opposed to look think. at me, I'm the shit. Yeah, yeah. like, oh, this picture's <laughs> really great. I look awesome. I'm going to post this. You know, how is that going to be a service to someone? Yeah. You know, that's, that's yeah, that's, oh, and, but it's interesting, Daniel, to talk to different industries 
yeah. about your website, about your branding. And my sister's a brander. Yeah. And I showed her my website. And you know, I have I have now I have a new website, but my, my old website and she said, Wow, you have so much text. No one has time to read. Yeah. You know, it's all about they want to see pictures, big heroic pictures. Yeah. And then like a little bit of text. And if they want to read more, they want to read more. She's right. like, and that's, they want to flip. It needs to look like Instagram. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I think even your websites need to look like social media. Well, I think that, uh, I read the stat the other day and I'll, I'll fact check this later, but the stat that I saw okay. was that the human brain processes images 60,000 times faster than text. So if you have a big picture that you find engaging, you're going to stay on that page. If you see a big block of text, you've already checked out mm -hmm. and you're, you're not going to take the time to read through all that. I will admit that I saw your website. What well, was in the new website? Well, it was in creation uh -oh. mode. Well, it was sneaking <laughs> through Well, because I was recording with Keith one day while oh, he was working on it. Oh yeah. Muscle Maestro. So Muscle Maestro was you're revealing all my secrets. Yes, Daniel. I am. Was tweaking <laughs> some things. And that was a conversation that we had. He said, you know, listen, her sister said this. Do you agree? I said, 100%. Absolutely, I do. You're on the right. You're on the right path, and it was only like half done when I saw it. But um, I saw it after it was finished, and and yeah, it's a, it's a, visually appealing, um, approach to it's websites. Better, it's a better track. Although things will change. Oh, and inevitably, I mean, that's I the reason that I consistently have a job is because social media and content and. We say social media, but it's, it's everything now. Like everything is social media. Mm -hmm. it, we used to have that print media versus this versus live versus, you know, TV versus social media. Everything is consumed mobily now. So it's kind of, we're now lumping all of it together. And it changes so rapidly that it's easier for you to look to a professional yes. like your sister and say, help me weigh in, like weigh in here. Help me out. I need to know what's prevalent now. That's why your opera biz brand is so important. Singers need to know where to look. Yeah. They need a PR guy like you. Let's see where that goes. Yeah. That's, the, that's the goal. <laughs> where can they contact you? Are you? Yeah, I mean, um, so this, this podcast is, is going to be um, operabizpodcast.com. Okay. And then Opera Biz uh, will be up and running hopefully October. Okay. Um, you know, creating a back end that's that complex takes some time. And I've got a web guy that's on it because I don't have time to do it myself. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to interlink everything as well as create a database for New York City for rehearsal spaces and oh, rehearsal gosh. accompanists and places to stay and transportation. And, you know, it's... It's all these it's, things you don't learn about in school. Oh, yeah. It's more of an undertaking than I expected. Oh, me too. <laughs> um, the plus side is I have my specialists lined up. A lot, at least the first okay. wave of specialists I've got lined up. Um, so that's going to be really good. But, you know, my personal stuff is danielwelchmedia.com. And that's the easiest way to get directly to me. Um, whereas the contact stuff for Opera Biz, you'll have to look for me a little bit more okay. because the, the brand is less about me and more about, like you said, filling the gaps in opera education. The stuff that's not covered in conservatories. Although I've been talking to conservatories recently and I'm hoping that I can get my foot in the door to help at least bring master classes to the table of you know, content creation and some level of media management, just so they're aware. There's uh, such a big gap good God. between university and professional life. Huge gap. Yes. But that's one of those things that I ask about when, you know, because a lot of our teachers that we worked with mm -hmm. 
we worked with them because they had major careers in the 80s and 90s. Yes. Because they have experience, because they know what it's like to be on mm -hmm. a stage. They know what it's like to, to perform those roles for real. But the active engagement to the modern industry is a totally different thing. So if somebody is in academia for 20 years, they're, they're going to kind of... They're out of the loop. Stagnates the wrong word, but mm -hmm. they're going to come to a point where what they're doing presently teaching is more important than being connected to how is the industry being run. If they're working on your technique, they're not going to be like, all right, what's going on with Instagram right now? It's, it's too much for a single individual to handle. It's just not, they're just not bringing in a third party to teach it. Yes, so many master classes I've taught at universities, the students always get up there wearing these knee length, or sorry, below the knee dresses. And there's a thing that you have to wear below the knee. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow, my agents, they would have never gone for below the knee or like T length. Well, it's also, really mean, big, it's also really big in the South. Yes. So people that I work with consistently who are holding auditions for companies in the South, who run companies in the South, if they don't show up in knee length or lower, it's immediately a red flag for mm. them, which I think is hilarious. Um, I mean, it depends on what character you're playing. I think so, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you look at people auditioning in New York, and, you know, ca casual is, is a different thing. You know, different, different places have casual and different lights. Like, you go to San Francisco, and you go to a nice, swanky brunch, and you're like, oh, normally I'd be dressed up for this. And you're like, oh, no, this is San Francisco. Or not San Francisco, San Diego. You go to San Diego, and it's like, San Diego casual is a real deal. You're in a nice restaurant, that dude over there is wearing flip-flops. Like, totally, and board shorts. You know, you're, you're eating $150 a head, and that dude's in <laughs> board shorts, and, you know, that woman's wearing a bikini with a wrap, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and what's it's, auditioning everywhere? And, that, and Europe and, is totally, you know. And you audition, different. and mm -hmm. what people are auditioning in now is so different from 10, 15, 20 years oh, ago. Yeah. Completely different. My last callback that I had, I was wearing nice jeans, good shoes, a v-neck and a sport coat which i ditched halfway through so people could see my tattoos right they you know have to see you. and when i t when i say that to people that they, they look at me weird but i remember the look on the people's faces when i walked out of the the audition room and you see everybody lined up in their recital gowns and their their black suits and they look at me like did he just sing for them or does he work with them because <laughs> he does not fit any of the profile that i'm imagining and they're right going now. to remember you Oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> so, and that's the whole point. But I talked to you, I always, I had this constant conversation. And when I had uh, Richard Carsey in the studio, and he's, he has, he's done a lot of stuff in classical music, but he's been conducting Phantom for the last seven years here in New York. And he sat in every level of audition, vocalist audition you can imagine, from classical oh, sure. through, you know, present Broadway, main stage stuff. And he said, if somebody comes in that looks like they spent more time preparing for the audition visually, aesthetically, than what their voice portrays, it reads as desperate to me. Yeah, he's And frankly, right. I, mean, yeah. I don't want to work with desperate. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm taking that line and I'm quoting you on that. He said, by all means do, because that tells me that you're more worried about the aesthetic than the way you sound and telling the story. So it, it doesn't always work to be more dressed up than everybody else. Yeah, I think you have to, it's more about how you feel. Yeah. If you feel comfortable and confident, yeah. that's, you know, that's what you should wear. Whatever makes you feel comfortable you should You should look prepared and professional. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not going to show up in board shorts and flip-flops to an audition, especially in New York. But, you know, I can, I can show up in 
good jeans and a sport coat that fits me well, that works with my aesthetic, and it be completely acceptable for that audition and, and nail the role. And, you know, women don't have to wear the recital gown. No. But I remember my friends that would come to audition in New York would come with their garment bags, this big fluffy dress, and they would get all done up and they would go somewhere to have their hair and makeup done before an audition. Oh, yeah. I'm like, you're not doing a photo shoot. No. This is a totally different animal. They need to see you. They're there mm-hmm. to see you. I'm, we're luckily seeing all this change a little bit already, but it was a big conversation in the app this summer was what's acceptable now. And, you know, but I'm, in order to re- re- retain relevance, since I'm not auditioning as much as I was, um, I'm trying to sit in on different auditions this season with m- multiple yaps and companies, Keith said I could hang out with NAO and oh, good. that kind of stuff. And, um, oh, it's interesting how people make you feel something the moment they walk in. Oh, yeah. You know, I've, I've, judged, I've judged some competitions, and I'm always amazed at the moment someone walks in, just their essence, yeah. who they are as a person, you can tell right off. Well, you should have the energy that you're going to have on stage. Mm-hmm. Because let's, let's face it, if you walk in the room and you're already forgettable six feet away... Is a stage really going to help that? No. Or are you going to be too into your head trying to make that happen on stage? You know, uh, I was talking to Michael the other day from Chautauqua, mm-hmm. and he, he was saying that they received 900-plus applications this season, and they're going to end up hearing less than 500 probably. And so they're going to take the people that they like their sound and then put the, those people in a room and then base the rest on what it's like visual, to work with them. And what's their aesthetic and what's their vibe in the room. And, you know, that's how auditions go. If we're sending in recordings, that's when they're listening for the technique. Face to face, they want to see what are you going to be like on stage? What do you like in character? What do you like to work with one on one? I know so many directors that if they feel at all like you're going to be difficult to work with, they're going to move on to the next one of 1,000 people that are gunning for this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was incredible to me. And also just your own personal, like, prejudices yeah. will come out when you're, when you're sitting and, and auditioning. You're like, oh, that person kind of have a wobble, or that person's singing straight tone, and I don't think they mean to sing straight tone. And, you know, oh, well, that, that, you know, this bothers me, but this really doesn't. But you have to kind of weigh them the same. It's really interesting. What was the scariest audition you've ever done? Ooh. I think any time I have to audition for someone who's already hired me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did not expect that answer. Yes. So because you already know they like you, and so I think you're like, oh, gosh, you know, I want them to still like you're me. You're trying to maintain? I'm trying to maintain, and it's funny. It kind of goes back to my student days, you know, because I'm like, oh, they like me. Oh, they already like me. Oh, and that, that one I think is way more stressful anytime I'm, like, re-auditioning for a company that's already hired me. Okay. Because I just, you know, want to continue proving myself in a good light, yeah. That makes sense. So. Interesting. All mm-hmm. right. Is there one audition for somebody that jumps out as you remember being particularly nervous for? Well, when I auditioned at the Met, again, I was really calm for that. Yeah. And um, I just had fun. Just told the story, had fun, left. Next day, got the call. Um, particularly nervous. I mean, I think I'm particularly nervous for most auditions. <laughs> I mean, even just like last week, I had an audition for someone who hired me yeah. for, for a role that they hired me to sing. And I was pretty nervous. 
you're not in the room, but like leading up to the audition. Leading, oh, leading up to the audition is the, the worst. worst. <laughs> like I wish, almost wish they would have just told me the day of like, hey, you have an audition. Oh, yeah. But like thinking about it and being like, oh, well now I'm, you know, last, last time this person heard me, I mean, they've heard me sing this role like four times. I'm like, you know, I was really, you know, that, now I'm so much better. You yeah. know, and how can I prove myself? And that is the wrong thing. Yeah. That's just the worst way to go, <laughs> you know? Because you don't know how you're going to feel in that moment. Right. And it's just no matter what, just this is how I'm feeling in that moment. And that's the right thing well, to do. Well, being, and being on stage in character is so much about being in that exact yeah. moment that how you feel when you sing a role doesn't necessarily feel like how you prepped it six hours prior. Exactly. Your head may be in a different space. How you feed off of the other people that are on stage. Right. That's the other thing that I find particularly difficult about the audition scenario is you're alone. You know, because rarely do we sing significant amounts of an opera alone, you feed off of the other people. It's not that there's other people to hide behind, but you pull from their energy, you pull from their acting cues. There's so much to deal with, as well as an orchestra and a conductor that's in front of you that's also giving you, and depending on where you're singing, a prompter that's there in case you just completely forget everything. Um, you have to visualize all of that. But in audition, in audition. you're just, it's just you, man. You're just yeah. out there alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although I do remember singing uh, a couple auditions, and I won't say who it was that I was singing for, but they were also a large baritone voice and they were in the back of the room not just mouthing the words that i was Ooh. singing but semi-acting as well with gestures and facial expressions and that was that wasn't i wasn't alone on that stage i was confused though <laughs> it's like i gotta not look at him do my own thing do my own thing oh i've had auditions on a stage where a woman was fooling with her scarf and I I mean there was just it was such a distraction just what she was doing I'm like what is she doing with this scarf is it is it attacking her <laughs> I mean there was so much extra movement and yeah you're you know you have to be in that zone yeah so but I you know I also think you have to recognize and feel and what's happening in the room or else you're not going to be fully present you can't like shut anything out yeah because that's not gonna that's not gonna work for you either you yeah. have to like let it all in. Auditions are just a weird scenario in general. My favorite audition call, one of my friends was proctoring an audition and I was out scouting locations for a photo shoot on my motorcycle. So I didn't get the phone call until I stopped and had my camera out and I looked at my phone and realized I had six missed calls from this person. I was like, I feel like I should call them back. And they're like, hey, so-and-so is, uh, is here and they need more guys. Can you come sing this? And I was like, I'm an hour and 20 minutes away. I'm on my motorcycle wearing like a leather jacket and armored pants. <laughs> so I'm not really dressed to an audition. Also, I don't have any music. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and I hear this mumbling in the background. Yeah, he doesn't care. Just show up when you can show up. <laughs> so I did. So I showed up and again, in motorcycle apparel, threw my motorcycle jacket on the seat, still wearing armored pants. And again, there was no music. So the accompanist knew what key stuff started in, gave me the opening notes, and I auditioned two arias a cappella. And it was completely random. And I didn't get a gig from that, but I got called back for some other things based on that event. But it was one of those, I was like, I, I'm so unprepared for this right now. But I had fun. I mean. <laughs> but you know, that's what we're doing every day is preparing. You know? That's true. That's very, very well put. 
Greer Grimsley. My husband just did a dramatic voice symposium. Down in New Orleans, yeah. yeah. New Orleans, yeah. New Orleans. New Orleans. And he said to Keith, you know, he's like, hey, what are you doing on the performance day? And he's like, you know, I'm doing laundry. I don't make it a special day. And that's what we can't make auditions a special day. <laughs> I'm doing laundry. I mean, if anyone knows, he knows. You just can't make it a special day. But I, I like that concept of being, as a professional, you're always prepared to be on. Like, it's not, I have to get my head in the right space. It's just, oh, I'm a singer. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. So speaking of what you do, you're, you're starting a new project. I am. I hear. Singers Anonymous. Yes. Talk to me about Singers Anonymous. Singers Anonymous is a group um, for singers who want to support and encourage other singers. Okay. So we will meet once a week for a weekly studio class. And then about once a month, we'll do things like you don't learn in school. Things mm-hmm. like, um, oh, yoga, um, meditation. You didn't learn yoga in grad school? I didn't. That's I shocking. didn't. It's shocking. <laughs> you don't have beer tasting. But it's, it's basically things that you want to help you enjoy the process of singing more. I find so many singers get in their own way. You know, that's very true. Yeah, and it's about enjoying the process, enjoying what we're doing, learning how to do that every day and what works for you and what doesn't. And I think if anything, that's what I've, since I've had success as a singer, I want to give back. I want to help other people. Absolutely. And I think so much of those things that I've learned, um, healthy, happy practices, um, I'd like to, to do that. And a studio class has been a big thing. Yeah. Um, and I've been doing that kind of informally for years. And, I, and I'd like to just do it on a larger level. So follow me on Instagram. What's, um, what, what's your Instagram? Chambers Kirsten. Perfect. Um, and we'll be posting events for Singers Anonymous. Are you, are you looking at having it be a regular schedule? Like you're doing a monthly thing, a biweekly thing? Or, or how you, do you know yet? I, I think weekly for studio. But because I travel a lot... Uh, my friend Joni also is going to be involved, so I'm I'm getting um, I, I'm getting help for that. So we're still we're still in the workings. Absolutely, of it, yeah, but yeah. It's yeah. been something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Nice. You know, I think I, I had a friend who had an audition um, last week, and I had an audition last week, and she called me right after the audition, and we had like a phone a friend, and I thought this is <laughs> great. Singers need a phone a friend. Yeah. And she's like, so I experienced this, and I said, you know what? I experienced this. And she's like, oh, so it's normal. I said, yeah, it's totally normal. So you're okay, and I'm okay, and yeah, we're doing it right. And like, so what did you, what did you do in your audition that like, you, you really liked? And she had all these things to say. And I said, well, that sounds like a, su- a successful audition, you know, and uh, your job is done. Yeah. So let's move on to something else. Want to go grab a beer? It's funny. We have the support of other singers on often a regular basis, but... And we all talk shop mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, I now have a podcast where we literally just talk shop. <laughs> right. But to get actual support about specific things where you're actually being heard, because so often when we talk shop, it's about one-upmanship or it's, well, when I did this or when I sang here, mm-hmm. like, all right, that's, you're not having that's a conversation. This is you talking to a group of people and then waiting while somebody else talks at a group of people and... But this is a sounds like a safe space conversation kind of thing. Thus, your you know play on 
AA with Singers Anonymous. Mm -hmm. and come be real. Yeah. Don't be pretentious. Let's talk about what we're doing realistically. Mm-hmm. What, do you have an idea when the first, first thing's going to be? We're just going to get together next month and just kind of, I, I'm going to post about it, invite a bunch of people, and just see who this is right for. And Do you have a venue for this, or are you going to like hold the first one at home? I'm going to hold the first one in my house. <laughs> and 75 people will show up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, have you, been, you haven't been to our been holiday place. parties. There's like 100 people that oh, good show Lord. up, and we're like all you know, just stuck to each other. It's a great time, Daniel. Deck to the nines. Deck to the nines. Sweating profusely. Singing and, holiday uh, favorites. Speaking of uh, your apartment, um, mm-hmm. I hear there is a uh, practice elephant or... Gosh, Elsa. Tell me about the elephant. Oh my gosh. Well, it's Elsa the elephant. Elsa the elephant. And she has the most sensitive, sweet, loving eyes. And she comes out whenever singers are just, <laughs> you know, not really in the moment, not really enjoying their process. So she's and not always present. It's only when she's, she's needed. Not, she's only when she's needed. Okay. And Elsa is properly named. It was my debut, actually, into the professional world was Elsa from Lohengrin. Nice. Um, and I don't think we ever talked about this. Absolutely named, no. At Savonlina Opera um, in Finland, uh, which was in a castle. I nice mean, how's gig. that for a debut? That's awesome. So, so Elsa has a, has a special place in my heart. But yeah, she's the she's the elephant that comes out, and she comes out for she's come out for many a studio. Is she class. a figurine, a stuffed animal? She is a, the cutest stuffed animal <laughs> you could ever imagine, and she has these blue eyes that like look at you with great understanding, and she loves opera. I will. You can do no wrong with Elsa. Elsa with Elsa, it's all okay. <laughs> I think every singer needs an Elsa the elephant. <laughs> they do. I've wanted to bring her to auditions. I don't think she actually did come to one of my auditions. Sneaker in the bag? Oh, I, t- I carried her. There I you go. I was feeling like that. I carried her. People were like, no one said anything. No one said anything. Because they were afraid to. I <laughs> totally brought her. <laughs> brought her to Chelsea. And yeah, no one said anything. It was awesome. I, uh, I was doing a recording with uh, <laughs> Alexandra Lang yeah. and Keith. And she said, Alex goes, I just need to think about the elephant. And I was like, wait, <laughs> what? Oh I was very confused. Keith goes, just ask Kirsten. I was like, done. I will so make sure that next time we have a conversation. Oh, yeah, he is. He's revealing all my secrets. That man has But, you know, road. quality. I, I think I know <laughs> some other stuff that we just we won't talk about, you know. But yeah. I feel like the elephant was definitely an approachable subject. It is. No, I think, you know, being a singer, being an opera singer, you know, you kind of have to be a big kid. And Absolutely. I think there's something about a stuffed animal that just makes you feel safe and playful. Well, you know, I'm, I have travel companions uh, that are small animal objects. <gasps> I and do I, too, And Daniel. I'm not the only person I know that has these, oh, you no. know? I have Prissy the penguin as well. Prissy the penguin. She's super small. She can fit in your book bag if you're traveling to Europe. Yep. And she also has a kind of a look of disdain on her. So she's, she, she will come out when you are taking yourself too seriously. Ah, Yes. All right. Prissy the penguin. I had used to have a penguin. It was a beanie baby, one of the mini beanie baby penguins mm-hmm. that I found while I was on a road trip, in the middle of the road. So I stopped, I picked up this trip. penguin, yes. washed it in dish soap because I'm not carrying around this random penguin I found on the street. No. Um, and uh, and it traveled with me for multiple years. I think it hit four continents, um, easily twelve countries. 
and uh, it disappeared uh, in Jerusalem. It was like, it was like oh. it was just hitchhiking, and it just when it got to where it was supposed to go, it just vanished. I have no idea where it went. I don't know if it was stolen, if it fell out of a Maybe bag you didn't somewhere. Need it anymore. Uh, clearly, I didn't. But then I picked up another one when I was on <laughs> another trip in Colorado. I now have a rubber duck that is um, is dressed as Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, wow, because there's this awesome. great rubber duck store. Now I'm completely blanking on the name of it. I'll have to fact check this as well. Okay. Um, but they had a bin of presidential rubber ducks. And I almost bought the Obama duck. Oh, yeah. But this Teddy Roosevelt duck would just Real hit the deal. spot. This, rough, this little rough rider. <laughs> so when I do motorcycle road trips and I go inside to pump my gas, like I go inside to pay for my gas I'm about to pump, I put the duck on top of the motorcycle. And you should watch how people don't, like they steer clear of the motorcycle. Oh, yeah. When there's something with a face watching them, it doesn't matter that it's a rubber duck. No one's going to fool with you, Daniel. No, they, they stay away from that little duck. And uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's always in my bag when I travel all the time, you know? <laughs> Maybe I should bring him out when I practice. Oh, I should I bring him out to auditions. Yeah, I just uh, sit. I'll be sitting in NAO's auditions and be like, <laughs> well, see, that's pretty ignore subtle. the duck. That's ignore the duck. He's just, just there, you know? <laughs> Questions I like to ask singers. Mm, okay. If you could go back in time and address yourself in undergrad, Oof. what would you tell yourself? What, what's, what's the one advice you would give yourself about being a professional singer? I would have to say that it's okay to make mistakes. Um, in undergrad, I was a straight-A student. I was a perfectionist. And what I've discovered as an actress is that when you really go there, I don't care how musically prepared you are, you're going to make some musical stakes if you're 100% there in character. Yeah. And by making those mistakes, that's how you create a magical performance. It's so important. Um, and I guess I would say that it's all going to be okay, that you don't, that you're going to fall so in love with this art form that it's not going to be about pleasing anybody. It's going to be about pleasing yourself. And that you're going to have a great time doing it. That's solid advice. I like that. Second question I ask singers. If voice type were not an issue and you could sing any voice type, what's the one role that you would want to sing? Like, what's the be-all, end-all role for you if you could sing it if voice type was not an issue? That's a great question, and it's, it's actually an easy question for me because it's the reason why I became an opera singer. Okay. I was in my first opera, Daniel, at the ripe old age. Well, I was in fifth grade. I sang at the Pittsburgh Opera Children's Chorus in Carmen. And from then on, I decided not only did I want to be an opera singer, that I was going to play Carmen. So your first opera, you were in fifth grade? I was in fifth grade. Wow. It was Tito Capobianco, actually, who recently passed away. Um, and it was, oh, it was just everything about that experience was just pure magic. That's awesome. And I wanted my life to be like that. That's, see, that just goes to show you that you don't have to be old to appreciate opera. No way. Oh. But all the time, you know, uh, opera seems to be kind of a love-hate sort of art form. And for the haters 
I get regularly like, what? don't old people listen to opera? Oh, I have friends who are opera singers that don't like opera. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah. I do. I'm not one of those I'll people, sing it, but, but I won't watch it. Yeah, kinda. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I get as much pleasure from watching an opera as performing in it. I've really? Always, I've always been that person. You are definitely in the minority on that I one. Am, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, if it's not done well, <laughs> then I leave. But <laughs> Yes. Um, but, yeah, but there's a lot of good opera happening all over the world, and yeah. that's what I've discovered. Yeah. I, uh, I had, and I tell, this, I tell this story to my students, YAP students, mm-hmm. all the time. We talk about the relevancy of social media. So I was at Figaro this last season at mm-hmm. the Met, which, of course, Great started, started with, the, with the curtains open. Uh, with the set visible. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were two girls that were sitting next to me. One of them, I think, goes to MSM. I heard them talking. It was either MSM or Manus. I can't remember which which. And then her friend that was visiting was visiting in town and uh, basically had no idea where she was. Didn't know what the Met was. Didn't know what, what opera was going to <laughs> entail. <awesome. laughs> it was completely... She had no clue. And, uh, and so she was on Snapchat the whole time. We were, we were sitting in orchestra... And uh, they had, st- I'm pretty sure they had student tickets, and which, by the way, if you're listening and you um, are a student, take advantage of the student tickets to the Met. If you're in New York or you're close to New York, there is no excuse not to get student tickets oh, to go to the so Met. so affordable. Um, yeah, it's cheaper to go to the Met any day than it is to go to a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you're an opera student, there is no excuse to not see as much opera, professional opera as humanly possible. It's completely affordable. So anyway, so these, these students, these kids were there. Kids, they, I would put them at 1920. And she's Snapchatting, and um, she was Snapchatting the stage because it looked pretty fantastic. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the overture starts, for, which has a very distinct overture for the Major Figaro. Oh, it's a great overture. And, I mean, we're sitting shoulder to shoulder. I'm not, I can tell this girl's reaction. And she was completely dumbfounded by hearing a live orchestra oh, yeah. at this caliber, uh, which is something that you can't replicate in recordings, just being in a house like that. Um, it vibrates on your bones. Yeah. I mean, you feel it. And viscerally. so she was sneakily Snapchatting the, the overture. And I was a little annoyed, but I was like, you know what? It's the overture. It's no big deal. And then the opening starts and they start singing. And it was just, it was a shock and awe look on this girl's face. And she continued to Snapchat through. Oh, jeez. And half of me, the Met goer in me, mm-hmm. was pissed. Oh, yeah. I'm like, come on. And then the other half of me that works in this industry goes, this is the shit we need. Right. We need PR. We need young people to be subjected, almost subjected in the sense that they don't quite know what they're in for and to be wowed by the art form so much that they have to share it with their friends. And that part of me won over. I'm like, Right. I know that I should tell her to put her phone down and that the ushers should probably come by and be like, man, put your phone down. I'm surprised Miss. They didn't. Yeah. And I'm really surprised they didn't. Yeah. But she went on for the entire first act, Snapchatting this live. But I want the next generation of opera goers to be so enamored with a performance that they have to tell everybody. And yes. the way that we all tell everybody now is through social media. Oh. She's not getting on the phone and talking to anybody because she can live stream it. So if she can sneakily live stream something that is totally blowing her mind, I'm going to let her do that as long as humanly possible because that's 
that's what we need. Yeah, it is what we need. And if I can get this from a 19-year-old, it tells me that opera has a significant future. It's not a dying art form. It just, we have to retool it to how the next generations are consuming media and consuming art in general. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we should be taking the place of main stage opera because that's the ultimate medium for it. But there's a lot that we can do to supplement the art form and get those people from their phones to the house to see it live. Yes. And then we've got those opera fans hooked. You know, there are some things that, that are gonna work better for others. Um, some stuff that's going to make more sense or some stuff they're going to enjoy more. Like when they did the HD um, festival and everybody was watching everything. Oh, out the, yeah, that was I was packed. sitting there watching Electra, And I remember this one girl walked up with her boyfriend. And she's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know, but it's, it, it's opera and it annoys me. And they just walked oh. away. And I was like, okay, I can understand Electra's is not for everybody. Oh, it's <laughs> one of my favorites too. Yeah, it's so well written. <laughs> it is. So just dramatic. But I feel like you, you need to already appreciate classical music and opera Probably. before being. If, if Electra's your being, first. Electra is your, your, your walk in. Oh, but Daniel. Jorge Sosa. Yeah. He, uh, the composer that I'm, yeah. that I'm working for, uh, with for, the, for uh, the Dreamer, his son is two years old. Guess what his favorite opera is? Electra? Zolome. <laughs> and I thought he was full of it. I, give, I come to this two-year-old's birthday party, I start singing Zolome, and that child's face lights up like I gave him all the chocolate cake in the world. I mean, he was so happy, so excited, clapping his hands, smiling, laughing. His favorite opera is Zolome. That's awesome. He's two years old. <laughs> so, no, I think, yeah, so age, apparently, is, age is irrelevant. Apparently, there isn't a time that's too early to submit <laughs> Zolome no. subject a child no. to Zolome. At least not musically. Yeah, he musically, loved it. musically over visually. No way. Wait, he's, his face lit up way more than we sang "Happy Birthday" for him. He's all about the Zolome. It's all about the Zolome. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you for taking your time and uh, hanging out and chatting. Oh, beer and opera, Dan. No, you beer and me opera. Hooked. Done. That part is amazing. So yeah, uh, we are we are sponsored today and supplied our location by Gibbard's Beer Culture on West 72nd between uh, West End Ave and Broadway. Um, phenomenal rotating 16 tap beer list, over 200, almost 300 bottles and cans, which can be taken to go. They're officially a bottle shop. Uh, come in and say hey to Matt, the owner. It is his namesake. Um, you can recognize him by his his uh, Mets tattoos, uh, and he's a good dude. So pop in, if you're in the Upper West Side, pop into Gibbard's Beer Culture and have a pint. And um, if you're around when I'm recording, pop up and say hello. Kirsten, thank you very much. Oh, this was so much fun, Daniel. We'll see you next time on the Opera Biz Podcast. For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can find me directly on Instagram at the Beard and Lens, and the podcast Instagram is at Opera Biz. Thanks for listening to the Opera Biz podcast.